Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck knobs? Just made that one up. Swear to God, just came out of me. Welcome to the show. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm glad you're here. If you're running, how are you? Keep it going. Do it. Keep going. Yeah, sweat it out. Today on the show, Jimmy Dore, the comedian, comedy and everything else. You can get his um, book. He's got a book. Uh, your country is just not that into you. It's available uh, right now wherever you get books. I'll have I'll talk to Jimmy in a second. Jimmy was one of those guys, man. He was uh, before I really started doing the podcast, or maybe right at the beginning. I went to his home, and he had me on his podcast, and I was able to see that that's how it went. That's how it goes. That was back in the day when we were all starting out. Though Jimmy uh, was doing his a little longer than anybody else. He used to do it originally with Todd Glass, comedy and everything else. And now he's uh, he does it with his wife. Yeah, it was he was one of the guys that inspired me to do it. Gave me my first break on the on a podcast. Him and Jesse Thorne and Keith and the girl, uh, they were the ones that uh, that had me on and, and made me realize that wow, I can do it. I can do it right in my house. I've always wanted to do it right in my house. So uh, so this is a little uh, tip of the hat for uh, Jimmy Dore finally. Hey, I didn't have him on for a while. I had him scheduled, and then I didn't have him on. I thought there was tension between us, and turns out there really isn't. He's just a cranky guy. I'm just a cranky guy, and, and that's the way cranky guys are. They uh, wander around thinking other cranky guys are mad at them when really they're just mad. Sensitive. Sensitive fellas we are. I went and saw Selma last night because I thought it was my responsibility as an American and as a man and as a white person uh, to go see it. I wanted to see it. Of course, I, I like movies. I like Hollywood movies uh, at times. I like uh, big movies. I like good acting. I like uh, a good story. I like a historical biopic occasionally. I enjoyed that James Brown movie. The last half hour of that movie's bizarre. I thought Selma was good, and I thought that the director's uh, sort of focus on um, King as a man, as a human man, was great. The, the story of, of, of uh, racist politics and racism in the South and the tensions and violence from that period. I mean, a lot of times, yeah, I think people need to be reminded of that. I know I need to be reminded of that. Uh, sometimes movies are just provocative. And uh, embarrassingly, if I could share my subconscious with you, uh, embarrassingly, I dreamed 
last night after I saw Selma um, that I had a really horrible set in the South that I was bombing on stage in the South and it went on for a really long time. So that's uh, some part of what my brain did with that. It personalized it, <laughs> which uh, is not, not, it's not surprising for a, a selfish man, but I thought it sort of captured the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the inherent white guilt and also the self-centeredness of uh, how I would take a story like that. But, uh, but it was devastating. It's a devastating movie, and it's, it's surprising. I, I believe that, that the reality of it was probably much worse, obviously, than uh, even what the movie could capture, and that, you know, that was this country, and that was this country, you know, 50 years ago, in most of our lifetimes, in my lifetime, in my lifetime. It's a year ago. It was a few months ago in this country. Yeah. It's fucking astounding, man. Still there. I, um, I, you know what? I, I want to talk to uh, my buddy Nick DiPaolo in just a minute. He's got a special out, and me and Nick go way back. Uh, I did one of my first gigs opening for Nick DiPaolo at Captain Nick's in Agunquit, Maine. Yeah. I was probably 22 years old. Nick's not really that much older than me, maybe a year. But uh, but Nick's got a new special out, and I, I wanted to give him a call. So listen up. Me and Nick DiPaolo started out together. He's, I, I got to get him on here for an hour, but he lives in a uh, little, he lives in, uh, outside of New York, a little upstate New York. I just got to get, I got to get him on. But right now, uh, his special... Uh, Another Sense Was Killing is now available at uh, at his website at nickdip.com. You can get it there for eight bucks. Let's call Nick DePaulo. Let me call him. Hello. Nick. Marcus Aurelius. How are you, buddy? What are you doing? Can you hear me all right? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah? So yeah. We, you live, wait, what, out in the country in a bunker? Uh, not yet. I'm building the bunker. I got the machine guns are on the way. Uh, canned peaches and spam. Uh, I live in Westchester, up oh, in the nice. woods. I'm like 40 miles north of the city. Well, that's nice. We're 40 miles from the comedy cellar, Mark, door to door. Oh, God, that's a long haul at night, it's huh? It's horrible. Yeah. I love my house. I love my privacy, but holy shit. So what happened? So last week, uh, you and I are okay, right? Of course. How many people do you, how many, how many times have you used that sentence when you talk to people? Probably 10 times a week. Well, it used to be more. I thought, I thought I had, I'd cleared everything up with everybody. Over 500 episodes, I thought I. <laughs> First of all, I want to thank you for having me, you know, on the show. I mean, I know you have like Mel Brooks and, uh, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Butch Patrick and Dorothy Hamill. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, all those guys. Me and The Rock. Uh, he's here now. <laughs> He stayed over last night because he had to do an interview this morning. <laughs> it was so funny because I got an email from some guy uh, out of nowhere through my website. It said, uh, so you're an asshole and Greg Fitzsimmons <laughs> and Nick DiPaolo think you're an asshole. And I wrote back, I said, well, that's a couple of assholes calling an asshole an asshole. So you must be an asshole for believing that. I never called you an asshole. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I never buddy. called you an asshole. I, I just, on my podcast, I talked about when we were up at Montreal, we had just done, you know, 
Opie and Jimmy Norton show. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember me, you were telling, like, Billy Burr and eight other comics? Yeah, it was crazy. And then somebody said something about me, and you go, who, DePaulo? He's irrelevant. <laughs> oh, man. And I went, that motherless fuck. Yeah, um, I, I had it coming. <laughs> I had it coming. <laughs> what is this special, dude? When did it come out? It, I... January 2nd, it's on, you go to nickdip.com. It's called Another Senseless Killing. It's like in the top 50 in pre-orders right now on iTunes, and, and it's been f- selling really well on my website, uh, nickdip.com. It's 8 bucks. Some guy paid, you can pay as much as you want. Some guy paid 208 bucks for it last week. You're relevant to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ruled you out immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, no, it's you know it's selling pretty well, and I, I shot it at Acme in uh, in Minneapolis. So the best, it's, uh, that's it's the like best a bird's place. eye view. It's an intimate. It's it's you know the energy's there, and it's a little dirtier than even I like to work. But you know, oh yeah, well it's a uh, well Acme's a great club. Oh, it's my favorite in the country. That that Lewis Lee. Have you ever fucking met a fairer guy? Then I mean. I walk out of there, I shot the, you know, I taped two shows like on a Tuesday night, and I walked out there, walked out of there like a lot of money in my pocket on top of it. No, he's a good guy, aside from the fact that he banned me from his club for 12 years. But, you know, that I guess in his mind there, there was fairness there somehow. Well, you, you <laughs> said he was irrelevant to the comedy scene, didn't you? In an article <laughs> yeah, or yeah I did. no, I think I took one of his waitresses back to the condo. Not a ban- <laughs> Wait a minute, that's a true story. Yeah. Yes, I remember you telling somebody that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know what the hell I did, but he, he was a little weird like that. But, you know, we made up. Everything's Maybe all right. Maybe he was banging her. I don't know. I just, I think sometimes they just don't want, you know, the the, the comic animal interacting with their <laughs> their pristine staff of, uh, of virgins and princesses. Yeah, exactly. Like most of them aren't cl- chlamydia-making machines. <laughs> oh, well, but, I'm not going to say that. No, I am. I, I, you don't have to say it. I just did. Oh, I, yeah. uh, and I have the prescriptions <laughs> to prove it. You've got the record of prescriptions. Well, I'm th- I'm, uh, the, the special is called Another Sense Was Killing. How long is it? Was it a long set? It's an hour. Like 58 minutes. It was like an hour and 15 when I did it, but I chopped out some of the- I showed it to Louie and he... <laughs> I had a whole I had a whole chunk of the Food Network that he told me to take out. <laughs> oh, he he actually told me that he I I was talking I went to his house in New York the last time I was there and we were just hanging out and yeah. he and you, you know he, well he said because it's not it, it's taking up too much time right and it's not necessarily going to stay relevant. The, I mean the Food Network I love it first of all I cook I watch it all the time it's like ESPN for me I love it and, too and and people you know people are. I mean, that's a really popular thing in our yeah. culture. But it was kind of, it's funny, Mark. He's got good instincts because when, when I put it in there originally, the material, I'm like, did I just sort of force that in there? Or yeah. I, I kind of questioned it myself. So as soon as he said it, I'm, I'm, you know, I was like, yeah, he's probably right. Uh-huh. It was kind of more mean. I was just ripping on the personalities. and Oh, and you love it. So it probably did you, he probably did you a favor because isn't that interesting that you love the Food Network? <laughs> it, yeah. you, just, you just said to me, you, be, you sounded like you build your life around this fucking network and you take a dump on the fucking personalities. You know, you're like a good shrink. That's true. I, I, I'm like you, self-destructive. I, yeah. I attack the shit I love. and It's weird, right? God forbid we uh, let anybody love us, right? I, I was making you know, fun of Barefoot Contessa. I said she had the hands and forearms of, you know, Alan Hale or some shit. Or yeah, yeah, you're sitting there with an apron cooking with her, uh, <laughs> do, doing one of her recipes. <laughs> I'm making her lemon squares, and I'm going, there's too much butter in this. What the fuck? 
Fuck. Yeah, I love to cook, man. I, I've been like I, I was away from it for a while, and now I started doing it again. I love it. It's therapeutic. Very. My problem is like I can spend hours making something that I can eat in three minutes. Well, that's right. That kind and of therein lies the problem. I've been yeah trying to lose the same eighteen pounds, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you get older. I, you know, I can't go out in the yard and run around and play football anymore. I get the I get, you know my hips and shoulders of a ninety year old man and. You, got, you have to pick up other shit. They, yeah, it's hard. Like I'm trying to lose a little weight now because I quit uh, nicotine, and I, I feel like my whole metabolism changed. And I, I used to be able to knock off like you know ten pounds in a month or so, but now it's a little harder. I've never seen you really. Maybe the first time I met you when we did. I think you were fresh out of rehab when we did Captain Brian's or whatever the fuck. Okay, Nick's. that's right. I opened for you one of my first paid gigs at Captain Nick's in a Gunkwit, Maine. Yes, you were very nervous because you hadn't been on stage in like a few years. And you only had to do like 15 minutes and you were shitting your pants. Yeah, yeah. I, probably... I didn't really know of you at that point. But then when I saw I'm like, oh, this guy's a veteran. He knows what the fuck he's doing. I was a mess. I was probably a little doughy, you know, a little doughy. I'm trying to think when the hell that was. It must have been like right after I run the on, won the riot. So it was like 88, 89. Yeah, had a little, still had a little rehab weight on me. Yeah. You looked, uh, yeah, but every time I see you, you're you're in shape. But yeah. You look like, and like I said, you had the Frank Zappa goatee going. That's what I got going now. Yeah, everything's going. Uh, it looks yeah. good. You look good. I even said it to my wife. I go, it's, Marin looks looks like he should be famous. Thank God. It's about said, time. He works on his personality. I mean, he'll go through the roof. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got that one problem, my personality. <laughs> What's your podcast called? Where you, Where's your podcast at? My podcast is at, at riotcast.com. It's called the Nick DiPaolo Podcast. How's that uh, doing? I was originally going to call it, I wanted to call it... Uh, Fuck Mark Marin. War, war, wartime Counselieri. Oh, nice. Uh, that, that, I think yeah. it would have been too hard to find on the internet. So, <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, Nick DiPaolo Podcast at riotcast.com. It's going okay? And I freaking love doing it, man. And you're a pioneer, so I, I thank you for plowing the way. Yeah, is there, are people enjoying it? They're loving it. It was. It's uh, like I said, I check on it every couple of days yeah. in the rankings. Sure. I know that doesn't really tell you that much. Right, but, uh, it, it's uh, it's always up there. So I've only been doing it about a year, Mark. So what's great, man? I'm happy, man. You sound good. You sound good to me. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, that's just the coffee. But uh, yeah, all right. Well, I'm glad I caught you at a good time there. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and trust me, when I went out to LA last week, you naturally you, you was the first show that came to mind. But, uh, but honestly, God, I go. Well, he thinks I'm fucking irrelevant. I'm not going to go on a show. That's not true. If you would have given me a little notice, we could have sat down for an hour. Next time you're out here, let's just do an hour. I would freaking love that, man. No, absolutely. I, I did all the other heavy hitters, and uh, and I didn't get you and Burr, so I want to get you guys next time. Just give me a little a little warning. Uh, I, I know. I, call, I called you like uh, my plane was leaving in like an hour and a half. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to meet me at the airport with your tape recorder? <laughs> all right, buddy. Well, I love you, man. I wish you the best of luck with the, with the special. It sounds great. I'm going to go get it. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Take it easy, buddy. I'll see you later. All right. That was uh, it's my old buddy, Nick. Uh, go check out his special, Another Senseless Killing. It's eight bucks at nickdip.com. So, crisis averted. I'm trying to do things differently, folks. I'm trying to do things differently. I'm trying to, you know, I'm dating somebody and uh, I'm trying not to be a dick. And I felt, uh, I felt a dick fit coming over me last night. I don't know if people can relate to this. I don't know if women can relate to it. It's got to be both sides both sexes have to feel this so where 
I'm not, I don't know how emotionally available I've ever been in any of my relationships. I know I've been enmeshed with people. I know it's been crazy. I know I engage in drama. But you know how you know how much have I opened my heart? How much does anybody really open their heart and just be comfortable being open-hearted and trusting somebody else and letting them in like that? I don't know that I've ever done it successfully or for real for very long. Like generally, I get it open, then I'm like, oh god, and I snap it shut. Sometimes I take someone's hand off. You know, it's dangerous. Might lose a hand in my heart. But um, but last night we went out. We saw Selma. And then we started talking after the movie. And then the you know some you know she said something that kind of kind of stuck in my craw a little bit. But I didn't really say anything about it because I thought it was petty. It's just bullshit. It was about nothing. It was about you know director's job or a DP's job. Who did what? Who was responsible for what? In particular, whatever doesn't matter. All right, but she was wrong, but it doesn't matter. I believe she was wrong, but I didn't need to bring that up. It wasn't, you know, why it caused that kind of trouble, but it's sort of stuck in my craw. And then, you know, everything else was just filtering through that little thing. It, you know, got stuck in the, got stuck in my brain engine. So now all, everything, all the information was coming in, everything, every interaction, everything that was coming in during our interaction was sort of running past that thing that was just stuck there, just, you know, stuck. And it was, it was, uh, it was making everything shitty. And by the time I got home, I was like, you know, I was kind of like, I wanted to fucking fight, man. I just, and I knew it was it just something had turned and I just wanted to fight. And I just sat there and she's like, what? And I'm like, well, all right, what happens now? What are we doing? And well, she's like, well, let's just relax and hang out, you know, and uh, enjoy each other's company. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. And it was just stuck. And I told, and I didn't, and then she said something and I snapped at her a little bit. And she goes, you just want to fight. And I'm like, ah, yes, I do. I do just want to fight. And I've had entire relationships like that that go on for years where I'm like this, where I just want to fight and I don't want to fight, but I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I need to get through this feeling right now. It's so fucking childish if you have this thing. Because you kind of just want to cry or just you know throw a little tantrum over bullshit. Just fucking grow the fuck up. I don't know how people have relationships and just keep that thing, that kind of thing in them. Just that festering resentment on both sides. It just sort of never goes away. And that's the baseline. It's just sort of, you know, just, you know, keep your feelings to yourself, you know, man up or whatever. But like, I just sat there and I told her what was going on. I didn't tell her why. I just said, I got to I got to wait till this passes. I assume it'll pass. And then like it started to, you know, I just let it, you know, I just kind of talked it out, played a little guitar had something to eat, had a lot to eat, shoved a lot of shit, just stuffed a lot of cereal over my feelings and some yogurt and some berries, which is relatively healthy for stuffing uh, feelings. All I know is I didn't fight. And I've been in relationships where we're fighting and just tearing shit down was basically foreplay. But all I know is that we got into bed. We, we did have sex. That happened. I think there was an argument to be made that we should have done that right away, maybe right when we got home. There was an argument to be made for that. But something just, I was not there. But I'm not going to say that the tension didn't make it better. I'm not going to say that. Because there's, that, that I would be lying. But, uh, but I do know that it, uh, that it was not uh, a destructive situation. Now let's talk to my old friend, Jimmy Dore, uh, you can, as I said before, you can get his uh, book, Your Country is Just Not That Into You. Uh, it's available wherever you get books. 
And uh, and uh, we get through the crankiness, him and I. We do it. We get through it. We get past it. We get into the real. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Thing. So you can see there was work being done on this workbench at some time. There were mm-hmm. tools used, things happening. Somebody was grinding down mm-hmm. a thing. and Yeah, a lot of grinding, some mm-hmm. pounding, maybe some uh, valve repair. Was there a vice anywhere hooked up to that? I think the vice was over here somewhere because okay. there's some padding here. I don't know. I haven't put it all together. I'm not a detective, Jimmy. I mean, nor am I. You know, I'm not a forensic. Uh, I, I don't do forensics on uh, on arcane mechanical uh, platforms. I'm not a detective, but I do do some forensics. You do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do some uh, some cultural forensics. Yeah, yeah. You're de- deconstructing. That is, this is correct. Wow. That's right. That's Sorting heavy through d- it. That is heavy duty. The way you got into that. Hell yes. yeah, man! You're a cultural forensic. <laughs> Uh, examiner. Yes, I. Oh, that's right. Yes, I know. I'm man. the I'm the Quincy of culture. That's right. Thank God someone's doing it because <laughs> no one understands how it died. <laughs> man, we're operating on all cylinders already. Was it? Was it ever really there? People say, where? Where? where, where did we ever really have culture? I don't know. I I think that there's this idea that uh, we had civilization and that yeah there was culture. I I think uh, at different points. Uh, you know, the culture has been higher and lower. We, I think we're at a low point. We certainly are at a low point. <laughs> you know, we are certainly at a low point. It doesn't, doesn't seem like the standards are holding, whatever they might have been. <laughs> You're telling me you think the Housewives of New Jersey does not reflect well on our <laughs> No, I, I don't think so. I think there's just too many outlets, Jimmy. There's too many outlets. Before, it was just three stations. Everybody was on the same page. Norman Mailer would appear on The Tonight Show. Yes. Remember those days? Kind of. Me too. As a kid, I would fall asleep waiting for the comedian to come on. Right. And but they would always have some author on who I couldn't give a shit about. Now, as a grown up, I'd love to see those yeah, guys again. Yeah, they're hard to see. You got to go find them somewhere. Nobody talks anymore, Mark. That's why podcasts are so big. That's right. I think they do talk, but just not on the outlets we're familiar with necessarily. And the few guys that do that type of talking might not be our cup of tea because there's only one. It's like either you're going to watch Charlie Rose or you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't seem to make time for him. I don't even make time for Bill Moyers, and every time I watch him, I'm like, God, that's mind-blowing. You know why? Because I think it's always a little depressing. It hurts. It I does. Mean, you're better off just uh, kind of like, yeah. coming up with your one-liners about the, <laughs> the fall of Rome as opposed to having it all explained thoroughly, and you realize, not only am I right, but it was much worse than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> that's the worst part that about the... watching guys who actually do the work. Yes. <laughs> do the uh, work. I'd rather not know. 
I'd rather, I'd rather just think this is a, you know, like a heat wave. It's not really climate right. change happening right now. 120 degrees, right, right. in September in Los Angeles. Oh, I thought you were meant you were using that as a as a as a metaphor for the end of everything. Oh, oh. I, like every day, like I I drive around and there's these moments where I'm like, it's nothing. It's not coming back. Whatever it used to be, whatever, <laughs> whatever when whenever there was some sort of value system in place, that shit is over. We get, because of uh, the you know uh, internet access and and just the the ability for everybody to sort of uh, kind of have no boundaries, it's become a completely predatory culture. And yeah, and the and the the, the planet seems to be heating up. Uh, definitely, the planet seems to be heating up. Also, people's um, you know bad behavior yeah. seems to be heating up. You know, people. It's and it's just hard to keep up with all the kind of meanness in society. For proof, just go to any YouTube video, click on the fourth commenter, and the fourth commenter always mercilessly rips the third commenter. And then and then the fifth commenter, the newcomer, tries to create like a little uh, common ground. And for that, the sixth commenter impugns his sexuality. Sure. So yeah. that's this is what's happening. Yeah. That's commentary <laughs> yes. in the culture we live in. That's and they're, and, they're common, and it's a cat video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's opinion matters just as much as everybody else's opinion. Yeah, and, and, you know, it used to be a time, you're right, talk about culture. It used to be a time when there were people whose opinions mattered more than other people's opinions, right? Informed opinions, you used to think. Yeah, informed Yes, exactly. Yeah. And now it's just... Uh, it's just it's just malignant punditry. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, Every, everybody's a talking head. Why has... is this guy talking? Who is he? I don't know, but he <laughs> and, seems confident. And you never get discredited anymore. Mm. You never you once you're a semi-famous person or you're in you have a Q factor, you never go away anymore. People will always keep bringing you on. Like you know what I talk about in in the in my new book is you know look at all the Iraq War people. Nobody's ever discredited. Or even yeah right. And if they are discredited or they are um, taken to task, that that news is not as interesting. How about how about my Mike Barnacle. Now, mm-hmm. he's a perfectly affable Boston. fellow. Boston, perfectly affable fellow. Columnist. Columnist, uh, plagiarizer. Mm-hmm. And uh, still has a show right there on NBC, MSNBC. Still has a, and he doesn't have his own show, but he's still a panelist. What was, did he get a, what was it Carlin years ago that he oh, plagiarized? He, he plagiarized and... Carlin and some, uh, and that, that wasn't the, that was the one that cost him his job. That was the tip of the iceberg. He cost yeah. him his job at the paper. Yeah, but right. no, but it's, he, he got promoted on television. Right. <laughs> Yes, but he's a, he's a he's a working man because you know he 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 likes to give that appearance that he's a working man because he doesn't get his teeth fixed even right. though he's a millionaire right and, and his wife is the vice president of Bank of America <laughs> but he's a he's a man he's the voice of the working man she she's a, the vice president of all of Bank of America she's she is an executive at Bank of America. Uh, she, like so there's probably I don't know what are, level. what are there tw- fifteen vice presidents? Then, She's yeah, one but then it gets to the point though, Jimmy, where you're like, all right, so is, so that guy is he the enemy? Is he an annoyance? Uh, is he really the guy we got to rally to get taken off? No, <laughs> I mean I I disagree with rallying source? to get people to take it. That's always backfires. Yeah. I think you know the. Um, the boycotts to get rid of people. Like when they got rid of Glenn Beck, they're like, yeah, we got rid of Glenn Beck. We're going to replace him with five more Glenn Becks. Yeah, it's like a Hydra. You just cut the head off and, and then... Is that yes, it is? yes, and five more appear. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Not as bad as Glenn Beck, but Glenn Beck went and found his own way somehow. Yep. Glenn Beck, yeah, he got his people and now he still has probably half of them. So I got to say to you, I apologize for taking so long to get you on the show because I, I, I owed you... A debt of gratitude for having me on your show very early on when I like I think before I even started the podcast, I think you were one of the guys I was like, well, what what, what do we do? How do, <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do we do this? Well, I remember when I first started listening to your show, 
I liked it a lot because I would uh, I like the part where you talked and the interviews less. I mean, I liked all. all oh but, yeah, but when you talked, uh, which is the opposite of what most people say. No, what I when that's you, true. Is it? I don't know. Yeah. When you talk, because I would always learn, because you're so versed in self help, mm-hmm. and you know all that <laughs> stuff. My, but, my own, my own method. But, but yeah. But I was, I was having, I would have this problem with my wife. Yeah. Um, Who so, you co-host your show with? So we uh, a podcast called Comedy and Everything Else, which we started with Todd Glass, and then yes. he left after episode sixty. Right. And then we ended up doing about hundred and eighty total. Oh, you don't do it anymore? So it's in hiatus right now. We wanted to start doing live show with it, but I got really- and Your wife's name is what? Steph? Steph Samarano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody loves her. So she always had a problem. Like, So like, I would get upset about something. Yeah. And then, you know, like me, like once I get upset about it and then it gets resolved, it's over. It's, it's out of me. It's over. I don't, it's out I don't, of you and into her. Well, that's what you said. You were talking about when you were married or whatever, and you you would tell your wife, hey, I, it's over. I'm over with. She goes, yeah, it's out of you, and now it's in me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was what exactly what happened with Steph. It would be in her. Now, she'd be upset for a while, and it would take a while for it to get out of her. Yeah. And I didn't realize. And when you said that, I was like, wow, really open. It helped my marriage a lot. I'm not kidding. I, I, that's not blowing smoke up your ass. I was like, that really helped me. Oh, I'm so glad. And so I, that's what I, and I was glad to have you on the show. I think I shared it with you then. So even that little thing, it's weird. Helped. It can take a. It, sometimes it is just a little thing that, like, those are the things that kind of tr- make you think different. Yeah, especially if they're easy. Yeah, you, you know, like that's very it, easy. Yeah, because everything's so fucking complicated, and you're like, this has got to be deeper than this. And you're like, well, why not? You just don't do that. Oh, all right. All right. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize that was an option. I can just stop doing that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I have choices in life over my behavior. But uh, but when did you start podcasting? I mean, when so we-, we were pretty early on. I th- I think we might have started in two thousand eight. Wow. Maybe. Right. I, I, I can't remember exactly. But then again, we weren't, I mean, you weren't necessarily the first, but the, the landscape when you started and also when I started was so a, So small. it was just a handful, right? Yeah, it was just a handful of people. Uh, Jimmy Pardo was the first one I remember. Yeah. And then, I don't maybe Adam Carolla. Right, Carolla and, and Kevin Smith. Sort yeah, of Kevin like. Smith, correct. Right. So then we got in right around then. Right. And Todd had a bigger vision for it than I did. I thought it was just going to be us kind of talking and goofing off. I didn't realize what it could be. Right. Right, like you've realized what it could be. Well, I mean, I just did what I did, what I yeah. landed on. You know, like, I, I don't know that I had any vision uh-huh. other than, you know, I can do whatever I want. And, uh, and, and it sort of evolved into this thing where I need to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you've been doing comedy how long? So I started my first open mic in uh, 1989. Right. So, so I moved uh, out to L.A. in 1995. From where? From Chicago. So you're a Chicago guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and raised in Born Chicago. Born and raised Chicago. Chicago in the city? Yes, right in the city, right by Midway Airport. Uh, really? Blue-collar neighborhood, really blue-collar, or as I like to describe it, racist. <laughs> <laughs> what, what neighborhood is that? Uh, it was Vidham Park, southwest uh-huh. side, the 23rd District. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's interesting because I go to Chicago. I've not spent an ex- extensive amount of times there. Yeah. But, but you know, there are certain cities in this country where you're like, oh, this is a real thing. Chicago's like, a real city. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. Philly, Chicago, yeah. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, I think. Boston. Uh, Boston, definitely. Those are real cities. Those are the ones, right? Yeah, yeah. So you can walk around it still. They got a personality. They they have a person. Exactly. They do have a person. An identity. In Chicago, by the way, my neighborhood is a great neighborhood. I tease them Mm -hmm. about being racist because they were. It's a white, blue collar neighborhood? (laughs) Yes. Like what is primarily Italian or uh, Irish? Irish, Italian, Uh Polish. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What are you? I'm uh, Irish and Polish. Really? Yeah. But everybody always thought I was Italian. I don't know why. You got brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, I come from 12 kids. So you're really Irish. 
And so that's kind of, yes, really. So that's where. Um, 12 fucking kids, dude. That's, well, so I. The, and the what joke, number are you? Can, do you know? Can, yes. Can I tell you the, the joke I tell about it? Tell the it joke. Is that I come from 12 kids, and people say you learn a lot about life growing up in a big family, which is true. And I think the biggest thing I learned is I'm easily replaced. <laughs> right? Like, I knew if I died, it wasn't going to put a big dent in their plans. Can't imagine, right. can't imagine my mom sitting around, oh, no, Jimmy's dead. What am I going to do now yeah. with just the 11 of you? Yeah. There's a head count every day. I think yeah. we're missing one. <laughs> yeah, I wish there was. There wasn't sometimes, and then they would leave you behind on the camping trip. But that's trip. not true. Usually, when I talk to people from from big families, they, the relationship with the parent is is uh, there's always a different relationship. But they all seem to love the kids as much as the other one. Yeah, I I, I felt favored actually. Yeah, because I was the youngest. So you were the youngest I, at twelve. So do you have siblings that are seventy? Yeah. So I have no. I have a I have a brother who's at least. Mm, 63 at least you don't even quite know that's hilarious they're very old uh <laughs> ah, come on. I, I don't even remember my oldest brother living at home he was like an uncle i yeah. know i never remember living with him so yeah it really it's really like and in fact he had a kid who's older than me so i have a nephew older than me stuff like that so it's weird it's wild it's it fascinates me so you all lived in the same house kind of or but, was there maybe what 80 you there at the most or so seven? there was probably i think at probably at any given time there was <laughs> I think the most we ever had was 10. But um, but when I went to school, my mom literally didn't know what to do with herself all day, right? Because she's used to taking kids. All so now we're all in school, and she went and uh, adopted two more kids. No, she didn't. Yeah, so I, we had 10 kids, and she adopted two more, so then we had 12. One a boy who was older than me, one year older than me, who could beat the shit out of me. Hey, thanks, that's what I need. Yeah, Another yeah. guy who can beat the shit out of me in yeah, the house. Yeah, yeah. Now you wonder why I'm I, going to comedy. <laughs> yeah. And then I had a little sister who I loved. It was great having a little sister. My little sister, Dolores, fantastic. So you, what'd your dad do? What I mean, what did he... He was, a, he was a cop and he was an honest cop, which sucked for me because, you know, we had to wear hand-me-downs and... And eat the f powdered milk. Nothing powdered he, milk. Wasn't taking anything under the table, huh? Yeah. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Wish he would have. Was he like a, a beat cop? Was he like a, like a regular cop or a detective? What he was. was uh, he was just a beat cop. Beat cop, and that was it. Yeah, a beat cop. He used to drive a paddy wagon. Really? Yeah, yeah, and yep. Mm -hmm. Is he still around? And yeah, he's still alive. Yeah, and he worked. He, his other job was he would do masonry, and then and then the the sons we would work with him in the summer doing masonry work. Which if you you know if you ever want to fuck up your relationship with your parents, work with them. Yeah, <laughs> especially doing shitty grunt work like that Bricks. In, in the hot summer and the humid summer. It's great. It's really good for your relationship. But I, I can't understand. So how many sisters you got? How many sisters and Except brothers? There's what? seven boys, five girls in my family. And do you are you in touch with them? You know what's funny is that uh, we were we were pretty close. I used to enjoy my family's company a lot because mm -hmm. my brothers are funny mm -hmm. and my mom has a good sense of humor. And my dad, no, ugh, no sense of humor, none. So ever was he a hard ass? Yeah, yeah, just really shut down. Yeah, and um, drinky. So he, well, here's the thing: his my grandpa was an alcoholic, so yeah. my dad was going to do him one better, and he didn't drink at all, right? So that right. was my dad's attempt to do better. So my dad, but my dad still had all that anger and rage yeah. of an alcoholic. So we never, so, you know, we got to have all that, yeah. but we never got to experience any of the fun drunk times. Right. Yeah. No <laughs> relaxing. Just yeah. a, a my, constant current of varying degrees of rage. Exactly. Well, the way I describe it, I say my dad had two emotions, angry and not angry yet. <laughs> so, oh my God. So how the hell does he keep, how did he manage 12 kids? He didn't manage it well. 
he was he wasn't around much because he was working all the time and then when he was home he was grumpy and hitting us he oh really there was some beatings going on all the time are you Where'd kidding you? poor we grew up poor poor people beat the shit out of each other everybody's hitting everybody they're hitting me at home they're hitting me at school i go to the park we hit the beat the fuck out of each other everybody's beating the fuck out of everyone you grew up uh, poor i don't know if people realize that where else are you gonna put the anger yeah no exactly. justice it's no justice <laughs> no justice. that that but, explains your uh, comedic disposition yes the, the little guy there you go the little guy's got to fight back that's why i'm always punching upward yeah yeah and to the to, uh, equally as futile as it was when you were a child yes exactly <laughs> exactly right people appreciate your sentiment yeah Thank you. <laughs> that's all i want <laughs> That's all I want. Hey, I appreciate that sentiment. Hey, but... you're fighting a good fight. We're going to go to our house now where it's comfortable. <laughs> we're going to go turn on our corporate television. Exactly. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, well, that's interesting. So you were getting it from all ends. What did he beat you with? Were there instruments involved? No, most, mostly, mostly mostly hands. It was, yeah. My dad was a big motherfucker. Oh, yeah? So, no yeah. belts, no sticks. I didn't need it. No. no didn't <laughs> need it at hand all. Hand was enough. No. My, my dad punched me one time so hard I pissed my pants. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it wasn't fun. <laughs> How old were you? Uh, the first time I was five, second time I was 16. Piston, you know, so there was a there was a 11-year gap between the, the pissing of the pants? Yeah. yeah. What, did you go out? I mean, was it like, were you unconscious? Yeah. The second time, yes. So he punched you? Yeah, right in the face. Oh, my God. <laughs> For what? I was drunk. I came home drunk, uh-huh. and uh, I was on the corner of my block. And I was uh, yelling, like I was being drunk, yelling. I don't know, maybe it was 10.30 at night or something. At anybody in particular? No. I was there with a friend of mine, Jerry Snyder. We were both hammered. And yeah. um, I was like, ah, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was just kind of like spouting. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my friend Jerry Snyder goes, hey, shut up. Here comes a cop. Yeah. And I look up. I go, that's no cop. That's my dad. Oh, no. And my dad just walks up and just fucking plows me. He just punched me right in the face. And, and that was it? What, did you, but did you get in the car? And then what? he picks me up. And then he put me in a headlock and he punched me all the way home. No way. No way. Yes, Mark. Come on. I grew up blue compasses. These are men. Yeah, but no, that's, that's a child abuse. I agree. <laughs> but that was commonplace. You know, my next door neighbor was an alcoholic Marine and he was constantly yelling. And so we thought we had it much better. Right. So we really, we were yelling like- Yelling at who? His kids? Uh, everybody. His wife, his kids, the Mar- paper uh, man. Any, Vietnam Marine? Yeah. Uh, Oh, I don't must have. I don't know. Maybe yeah. who knows? But he was a big drinker, and mm-hmm. uh, but at least he was like I would see him every once in a while. I would have block parties, and he would be giggly. I'm like, oh, I wish my dad was yeah. like that once in a while. <laughs> Get him a drink, one drink. Your Just, dad never had one drink. Uh, one time I saw him have a. He got he had some champagne at my brother's, uh, and he got a little tipsy one time. Did you know your grandfather, the drunk? Yeah. Yeah. Was he a good I, guy? I, I didn't really know him. Oh. So I, I just wanted to go over there. And he, he died when I was in second grade. But was he like in the neighborhood? Was this everybody in the neighborhood? Your other grandparents? Your mother's folks? Where were they? My mother's folks, very, it's all very secretive. My mom won't tell me about our, her family. She goes, oh, the building burnt down with the records of my family. And, really? And I was like, what? So I was convinced for a long time my mom's mom was a prostitute. Because they all had funny names. My mom's name is Yvonne. My aunt's name is Aloma. Huh. Like and I'm like, oh, was she like, is was that a pimp giving names out or something, you know? But that's not. Turns out that wasn't it. But um, did you find out what it was? It was. I think something. Those names came from operas or something. But, but where's it? But, but why? Oh no, I don't know what it was. Yeah, but you were a smart. Secret, guy. secret, secret. You I, never, never. You never went, went, went and did the reason. Your mom's still around. Yes. Yeah. And now at this age, you don't sort of like, come on, let's. Just... When my grandmother died, my mom didn't even tell us. Wow, and you and, not, and she went. She went to the funeral and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm sure all my cousins went, and I'm sure they were wondering where the fuck 
are the rest of the doors. God, that sounds interesting to me. And you never, like, what, what's stopping you from pursuing that information? You just don't care or what? I just really don't care. <laughs> I really couldn't care less about my mom's family. I couldn't care less about my extended family. I really couldn't. I have why, some, I have some fun cousins. I like. I have some fun nieces and nephews. I like them. I love them a lot, you know. But I don't really care about. Like when I was a kid, I had a hard. Like I said, I had a hard track keeping track of my brothers and sisters. Sure. sure. And then we would have these big family things with the cousins and the uncles. And I go, yeah. "This is your uncle Ned. This is your uncle. Fry. I couldn't keep him straight. I couldn't give a shit. Yeah. The t- say hi to your uncle Mush. I had a, a guy named Uncle Mush. <laughs> Say hi to your Uncle Mo. I'm like, I don't even... I can understand that. But I guess, like, because I forget. I'm, I'm sitting here grilling you. One time... But I, I don't keep up with my cousins. I don't, you know... One time, this is... Can I? One time, uh, my brother... and So we did masonry. And then my dad retired. So my brother kept doing the business. Which is the oldest brother? My brother, Tony. He's yeah. he's the third oldest boy. And so uh, he, we, he goes, hey, I got this job. Come help me. I got to fix this chimney on this house. He goes, they're relatives of dad's. It's dad's cousin or something. Yeah. He goes, they're going to start, to, don't let them know you're a door. They'll never stop talking to you. Right. So I go, oh, okay. So we go to fix it, and I'm just going to run up the ladder and fix the chimney with the bricks or whatever. And yeah. the guy comes out, starts talking to Tony. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So he, so we come down, like, hey, come on in and have lunch. Yeah, yeah. And I, my brother Tony goes, okay. I was like, no, that's not. So we have to, we go in to have lunch. and we're say- So the whole time I'm pretending I'm not Jimmy Dore. Right. I'm someone else. And the woman is looking, and she brings out the family chart. They have yeah. it all, like the tree. Yeah. And she starts going out, and I see my fucking name on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and she, and I look just like my brother. Right. I look just like my fa- everybody in my family, you know? Right. Blue eyes, dark hair. I look right. exactly like Right, her. right, right. And she, the woman's looking at me, and she's just, I just knew she was bullshitting. Two weeks later, I was at a wedding, and she was there. She was there. She was there. Yes. Why didn't you say anything? Because my brother told me. I thought no, we we're going to be. Didn't she say something? She never. She didn't like call me out right there, but she. I knew she knew. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of funny. It, but it's so. Do you? I, I mean, do you check in with your brothers occasionally? Yeah, I check in. My brother Miles and Tony, I'm tight with. Yeah. Uh, we have my family kind of paper. Like we're so like I said, my parents were adult children of alcoholics yeah. who never really fixed it, so they were with dry drunks. Right? Yeah, right. And uh, both of them. I don't know about my mother you so much, but she certainly mother. has some drama <laughs> issues. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. I would say so. And uh, hiding her mother's identity would be one of them. Yeah, yeah. those are secrets, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the shame yeah, spiral, yeah, sure, right? Sure, you're only as sick as your secrets. They say. They say. Yes. Right. So yeah, so we papered over our problems pretty well. Yeah. Now I moved out here in '95, so I really didn't see my family that much since then how old were you uh 30 really yeah when i moved out here where'd you start doing comedy so what were you gonna say your family what they so not but it kind of kind of fallen apart in the last couple years tough tough yeah tough to cold there's a lot of people yeah and i got some i gotta be honest i got some knuckleheads in my family sure like what kind of knuckleheads like real knuckleheads (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but I got some great people in my family too. I don't want to shit on my family. Politically, you have problems. Yeah, not only that. Yeah, yeah. there's that. Yeah, I got. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't want to say it's not good. It doesn't re- reflect well on me to speak. You know, you have to love your family. Mark, it builds character. Sure, sure. <laughs> you you got to pretend to publicly is what. Yes, we're that's what I'm. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you have to pretend to. But my brother <laughs> Phil's coming Anyway, let's go. <laughs> He's got one shot in at Phil. Can I tell you, the, here, here's sure, the joke sure. I wrote, my brother Phil. Yeah. Here's the joke. Here's who he okay, is. Okay, okay. So my brother Phil uh, uh, made about 50 grand a year selling how He was a real estate agent. He didn't do well. But he yeah. was, uh, But he, so he took a job driving a school bus for the health insurance. Mm-hmm. And one day I'm out his, at his house out of nowhere, he starts complaining about the estate tax. Uh-huh. He goes, hey, we got to get rid of that estate tax. I'm like, sure, Phil, what the fuck are you talking about uh-huh. he goes that's if you die and you have millions of dollars the government just takes half of it yeah i was like that's horrible let me know when that becomes a problem 
But until then, maybe you should turn off your AM radio, get invited to your own life, okay? Yeah. I'm sure the estate tax sucks, yeah, yeah. but I'm pretty sure estates don't have two cars that don't work on the front lawn. <laughs> you should be worrying about the T-shirt tax at Walmart, you dickhead. Uh -huh. So that's who he is. He picks up the talking points and runs with them. Hard. Yeah. And then threatens to beat you up if you don't well, agree Well, you know, what's them. interesting is that how... One of the things I learned from doing political talk and in, in, you know, in my personal revelation around it was that if you are fundamentally angry, you know, you pick your side and you work those talking for <laughs> that, you know, like it, it's interesting, you know, how many people are really actually committed ideologically to uh, facilitating change or, or working quietly to make it happen. Those people are, are sort of like they're they're the uh, they're the unsung heroes, the people that actually chip away at a grassroots level to change <laughs> the organization. Yeah, sure. You know, on a, on a city level or there's community a, level. There's a group I'm involved with now called Wolfpack, and, uh -huh. they're, and they're dedicated to getting money out of politics because people, when I go and uh, to promote this book all around, people always go, oh, Jimmy, so you, you've identified the problem. What's the solution? They don't expect me to have one. And the solution is you get money out of politics, and there's a great group called Wolfpack, wolf-pack.com, uh, and they started... They want to pass a constitutional amendment around this issue to get money out of politics, which you can, you know, every generation has passed a amendment except us. So it's about time. Right. Yeah. And they started with New Hampshire. They got New Hampshire to pass it. What's the what is the exact uh, terms of the legislation? What does now, it mean to get money out of politics? So they, what you, put gonna, a, you put a ceiling on it. So what they're going to do is uh, I think they're going to call for public financing of all elections. As so opposed that, to private finance. As opposed to private finance. And then people go, well, that'll cost a lot of money. Well, you and I both know, Mark, it costs us a lot more money right. to not have it public finance. Right. right. Because the reason why people finance elections is so they can rig the system in their own favor. That's special One interest. way or the other. One way or the I mean, other. Right? Either, either in a very dubious way or just by pummeling us with uh, advertising and, right. and misinformation. So it's it, they, people said, you can, oh, sure, you got New Hampshire. It's a small state. But you'll never get a big state like California where they have defense contractors and oil money there's too much money here california passed it too and now last week in the senate they passed a resolution to open debate for calling a constitutional amendment on this issue the ball is moving people are getting awake awake to this i bet you politicians hate it too politicians hate raising money uh -huh. they spend most of their time raising money i'm yeah. sure they would love to get money out of politics well it's interesting how many people will it, it really comes down to how many people get active around this stuff i mean i'm sitting here with the you know i've avoided jury duty once <laughs> And they sent it back. They sent. They want me, and I'm like, "Is there anything I can do to avoid my civic duty, to go, uh, you know, sit quietly and judge in a context where it's an actually invited?" <laughs> yeah. That's right. Do you have you gone? No, I. I so one, one time I got called, and I called in, and I was lucky because it was Christmas, so they you know, so I I didn't get oh. I have to go down there. And then I got another one. They seem to hit me every year. I don't get any break from it. And I, I, you get one, um, you yeah. get one out, and that. So I took that, and now they, I got the thing, and they want me to show up. And it's hard with what we do. I mean, I think those rules were made when people just had jobs where they worked in town. I mean, it's I, like I, I can't. What do I got to do? I, I, I don't. I can't imagine how someone could sit on a jury trial for more than a couple days. You know what I mean? Like even the Zimmerman trial. So then it makes you wonder, who are these more people? You think they're morons, right? I thought like, who are the people who aren't smart enough to get out of jury duty or don't have a life that this would disrupt enough to have but, to get out of well, jury but it, duty? But it's interesting. You talk to people like I talk to people and my friends who are intelligent people and, and uh, in, the, in their guts, 
they they do see it as like, well, you got to do it. It's your it's it's this weird. It's a civic like duty. That, it is a civic duty, and there's like there's so few Some that we're actually held to. <laughs> you know, like obeying laws is that that should be sort of a passive thing. But yeah. like, there's one thing where it's sort of like, can you show up and and you know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I have a hard time. It's really. I, I, someone told me just don't return the notice. That's then, what I heard too. But I'm. I'm. Yeah. I. I'm. Uh, I, I guess I'm the only idiot that's compelled by guilt to uh, say like, all right, what do I got to do? Oh my god, I can't do it. On the positive side, Mark, I've never ever heard of a prosecution over someone not going to jury duty. Have you? No, they threatened a thousand dollar fine and up to three days in jail. Yeah. Or or community service. But I've never heard of it happening. Have you? No, but there's always a first. They're going to make an example yeah, out of they're us. Gonna make it. <laughs> but the weird thing is, is I don't even know if I go down there and I say, look, I, you know, I run a radio show. You know, I, I have a voice in the world. Am I the guy you want on this? I Because cause are they going to swear me to secrecy? They can't do that. Oh, that's, maybe they can sequester you, right? Or they, or yeah, I mean, well, I, I don't make know. Make a gag rule on you. Uh, yeah, but why would they bother? They'd be like, next. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you're right. We, you know. Yeah, I did political talk radio for three years. Uh, you know, I have a, a substance abuse issue. I'm sober 15 years. I don't know if I'm the guy. And I have a big mouth. Yeah, and I'm a stand-up comedian <laughs> with a podcast. But I'll do it if you need a guy. <laughs> I'm willing to fill in. <laughs> so what What? What did you Did you go to college? Yeah. I went, Where at? Uh, well, I went to Illinois State for three years. You know what they say, if you can't go to school, go to state. Yeah, but sometimes you know state schools are no, good. no. I'm, I'm school college is a scam. And then I got my degree from Columbia uh, College Columbia. in Chicago, not Columbia University. Right. But I just put Columbia on Facebook so people don't know the difference. Right. Is that the one you can <laughs> do online now? Columbia? No, no. This is a, it's an art school in Chicago. It's actually a great school now. When I went there, I went there because they took all my credits from Illinois State. They were the ones who would take most of them. What and were I, you studying undergrad? What were you studying? Communications, in- and I was going to go into advertising. I got my degree in marketing communications. Yeah, you were going to go into advertising. Yeah, I was going to. Write co- I was going to write copy, right? With beat, right. beat laying bricks. That yeah. was my other and option. Also, there's creativity to writing copies. Yeah, and I like the thing I liked about advertising, Mark, is that yeah. there's no rules, so you can write a one-word sentence with a period. You can put a period after one word. I like that. Well, so it's fortunate now that culturally there are no rules anymore. Either. Now there aren't any rules, yeah, that because period. of t- tweeting and yeah. all that. There's no yeah. more. You can do whatever you want. That's right. So, but that's what drew me to writing copy for advertising. That there were no rules, so I didn't. I couldn't do it wrong. Right. So it freed me up creatively. Right. But I never got a job because as soon as I got out of college i uh, went right into doing stand-up but you what so you did one year at the art school yeah about uh, two three semesters and, we, and what were you doing there you were actually trying to write copy and yeah. pursue yeah i was learning advertising i so learned you, a lot about it so you applied for ad jobs for copy not jobs? one <laughs> not one i got out i was like you know what i don't want to get a job this summer i'm gonna have one more summer where i drink my head off yeah and have fun with my friend john mcguire yeah and john caparelli we're gonna go drinking and then uh and during that time, I started doing comedy. My friend John Caparelli said, hey, you know, there's an open mic at this comedy club over here. And I was like, get out of here. And they, he said, yeah. And the guy who wins on Thursday gets to go up on the Friday. And I was like, I'll go. Are you? Are, are they comics, John McGuire? No, these are oh, just, just yeah, cops. He was a, John Caparelli was a cop friend of mine in Chicago. Yeah. And John Ca- um, McGuire is a, uh, works for the Chicago Transit Authority. I think I know a Chris McGuire who's a comic. Yeah, he's a kind of writer for Comedy Central. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chris McGuire, great guy. But yeah. um yeah, so that I went to the open mic, and bef- that that was at the time when you know they were handing out comedy club jobs. You know, so I, I got a comedy. I went to a place called the Comedy Womb. That's where, and their thing was that's where comedy comedians are born. Get it? Comedy Clever. Womb. Yeah, you should have offered to write them some ad copy. <laughs> <laughs> you get a different angle on that. That was the play. I mean, to me, that was like. 
Taj Mahal. But no Zanies. That was the Taj Mahal. Oh, sure, I worked Zanies, sure. But like the comedy- But that was, I waited to go to Zanies because I was intimidated. Like, to me, that was the big place. It was the big place. Uh, but and then but when like, I, what year was this? 1989. That's about when- That's the boom, baby. That's when the, the fun- The end of the boom. Yeah. Well, the was, end of the first boom, kind of. Mm-hmm. Because I started in- I started working professionally in 88, and then already people were like, yeah, it's not what it used to be. Oh, really? They yeah. were already saying that then to you? Yeah, but that was the end of that first weird because, 80s boom. Yeah, when because clubs were still opening in Chicago until about 91, and then that was it. Yeah. And it was just, man, it went fast. Really? Yeah, it went really fast. Clubs started closing left and right. And what there was used there? to be, the, there was an improv, which was a 450-seat room. Then there was a place called The Funny Firm, literally around the corner from each other in downtown Chicago, both 450-seat rooms. I think rooms. the improv is still there, isn't it? Mm-mm. There's an improv in Chicago, but it's not where it was. Oh, okay. Well, I, um, so what What were you sort of focusing on initially as a comedian? What, who were your guys, like the the ones that you listened to? And- so, you know, I mean, I had the, the usual favorites. George Carlin, right? Yeah. Boy, that was such an awakening when I heard him. I loved him so much. And then I also loved Jerry Seinfeld, and right? And then I thought I was pretty good. I was like, I got this. I think I know what I'm doing with comedy. I was in about three years in. I was like, I'm pretty good. Were you featuring Look, or opening? Yeah, I was or- featuring, headlining B rooms, featuring A rooms. I was like, I know what I'm, I'm going to be a headliner soon. I got, look out for me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And then I saw this guy named Bill Hicks. Yeah. He came to Chicago, and I sat down and watched him in my special spot. And uh, the f- first five minutes, I was like, wow, this guy's really something. Ten minutes, I was like... Somebody get me a drink. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes, I was pretty sure I was quitting comedy. Yeah, yeah, I got to go. <laughs> Bill, Bill seems to have covered everything. Because I always thought, you know, like I could, you know, be the best. If I do everything right, I could maybe be. So you saw him in the late 80s? Then I saw him in no, the early 90s, so like 93. Right before he died. Right before he died. So like maybe 92 maybe even. So because I saw him probably, I don't know, I would say at least 50 sets I saw him do at Chicago. And because uh, he played there four weeks a year. And so I would go anytime he was in town, I would be there, right? After I saw him that first Every time. Every night. And see, the thing is, I always thought I could be. Did you ever see him walk a room? Yeah. 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 So I, I, uh, half, half a yeah, room. Yeah. So I, I thought that I could be the best someday. And then when I saw Bill Hicks, I knew that for the rest of my life, I was going to be competing for second place. And that really hurt. Well, but, but, but why? I, why I, I don't know why, because I was immature, and that's no, no, why I no, thought. No, 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 but it. I mean, we all do it, but there there is a sense after, I mean, it took me 20 years to realize, like, I do what I do. Well, that's what I had to realize. But I realized, well, it? he did what he did. Well, thank God he died, and I didn't have to compete with him. <laughs> so <laughs> I had that going for him. I was like, that's really nice of him to go young. No, so, I, no, really, I realized that after he died, everywhere I went, somebody was trying to be Bill Hicks. You know, trying to be in their face and smoking on stage, which is the least badass thing you could do. I think I was one of those. It's it's, it's okay. Yeah. And so, uh, but you didn't do it like, I'm in your face smoking, right? You were one of those guys, were you? I I don't know. Like, like I really was fairly careful not to to watch him too much, you know, but I think there was something about, there was a lot of people that were actually kind of doing his cadence and stuff. Oh, no doubt about it. And, you know, but it was still, it took a unique type of comic to even attempt that i mean like you see that all the time i mean you, know, you, you there are certain people that have a contagious cadence Atel, you know todd uh you know there are certain people that are sort of stylized in how they deliver joe hedberg yeah you know but uh but you know i mean i think that's just part of a comic's growth and you know hopefully you get out of that or at least make it your own you know brian regan i, brian I see regan. around recently what, you know when people. i when i first worked with norm mcdonald i sound like him for about two weeks yeah it's hard it's like if you're a writer you do that you know mm-hmm. you, you you read a book and then all of a sudden you're like oh my god i'm vonnegut i gotta <laughs> but uh but i don't think that's abnormal 
But but the the content of what Hicks did, the thing is, is like Hicks, you know, held a line where, you know, there was so, you know, there was an aggressive lack of pandering, you know, to the point where, you know, the territory that he claimed for himself on stage was uniquely his because he didn't, you know, his his satire was so deep and the the type of truths that he decided to eviscerate uh, and do it so lyrically were so kind of raw that people did not know how to contextualize him as stand-up. So, like, the people that understood it and were like, this guy's the second coming, you know, were, were far outnumbered by the people like, he's making me uncomfortable. But that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, So because so if you, everyone likes him, then it makes it less special in a sense. But there's just no way because he was really, you, you know, he had taken up the the torch of, of, you know, hardcore satire and speaking truth to power in a way that no one really had. Uh, but but unfortunately, as we've talked about earlier, they the culture was changing and relevance became harder to sort of garner. Mm-hmm. You know, like at the time Lenny Bruce was around or whatever, you know, when Lenny Bruce got busted nine times, I mean, it was going to be carried by the national media. Yeah. You know, Hicks walks a room, there's three comics going, that was cool. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, he didn't get arrested. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and he should have. Yeah, you know, just it for, certainly would help. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, he was. What great. he got, you know, what? In fact, when he got canceled from David Letterman, that was also that was like one of those things that got him notoriety, right? But more even, than but, actually but doing even the then set. It was so late. It was so late. I felt that too. So, so how did you regroup? I mean, what you know? Okay, so you watch Bill Hicks. And- so when I saw all these other people that I thought were doing an impression of him, and it kind of repulsed me a little, or it made me not want to be that. I was like, I don't want to be that. And then, uh. I just realized that I got to be who I am and I didn't want to be angry on stage like them, right? I wanted to be able to like uh, not be that way. So I went the other way. Little control. So I upped the charming part of myself on stage a little, even though I still had maybe a little bit of rough edge just because I come from where I come from. And um, so I did it that way. And I, and I, instead of being that confrontational, I would be more confrontational with the ideas and not my pers- not my manner. Yeah, well, yeah. That's see, that's a that's a good choice. Like, I I don't I never made that choice. It had to happen naturally because mm-hmm. a lot of that for me was just you know I was angry, but I was just angry. You, you know, I could sort of like I was saying before is is that if you gave me a reason, and I I thought well that's a good reason. Mm-hmm. I'll just redirect some of the anger that I have <laughs> in my parents into this reason. Mm-hmm. So like it was more of a psychological thing for me that I couldn't stop being angry until I got comfortable with myself. <laughs> like it wasn't a choice I made. It was like some of it naturally went away and right. some of it was just sort of like, you know, what are you really doing up here? Because you can hide behind anger. Anger is the easiest thing in the world to fucking, it's hard to make funny. I imagine a See, lot of See, this it... is one of those times when I'm learning from you. Again. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's like a lot of those guys I bet you're talking about now, That where are they? Nowhere. Right. I mean, like, you, you, that's the weird thing about angry comedy is that there's only one or two guys at any given off. time that can pull it off and then there's a lot of guys thinking they can but it ain't it, it's 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 hard. It's easier to be cranky. Yeah. Yeah, I would say Lewis Black is cranky. No, he's a great crank. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's a rare thing and it's one of the it's one of the greatest comedic archetypes there are because like Letterman's an honest crank. Yeah. To be to be an endearing crank is such a fucking gift. Yes. Because you can't manufacture it. No, right. And if right. you're too angry, there's no charm to it. Yeah, but yeah. to be the guy that's sort of like, What's going on? I like I, I yeah. like George Carlin when he was angry. In fact he got angrier as he got older, it looked like I think Hicks had a, a profound impact on him. I think so too. I think so too, and I think it it 
it seemed like he was kind of like uh, what I did was try to confront with the ideas and be kind of charming, which is how he was. And then like, uh, maybe Bill Hicks influenced him. Go ahead. Just be angry if you feel like it. And he was old enough to where he didn't give a fuck. That's right. I, I really I mean, it's too bad we don't have the the option to ask him. But I think he's made comments about Bill. And, and I think that like it was clear to me that because Carlin was really the 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 sort of precedent for what you do in a way. You know, to do to to be. I'd like that. He's my more of my template. Right actually. to be clever, to be mm-hmm. smart, mm-hmm. to take on sacred cows, but not yeah. to you know, hit it over the head with it necessarily. And if you're gonna, to make sure you got a good button on it. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I, yeah, and I think that like you, you know something later in his life, you know, outside of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel or whatever is at the end, I'm sure he wouldn't say it was a light, but he was like, "What do I care? Mm-hmm. I can do an hour a year, and if it gets more weird and more angry, who cares?" Like, there were points in later Carlin where you're like, what? (laughs) I know. I saw him, though, right before he died, I saw him do a set at the Comedy Magic Club. And I'd I'd only seen him in big venues, right? And uh, so I got to sit in a club and see him. And, you know, when when you're in a room that's small, which is, I think, a better... I don't know f- shape for comedy. Yeah, not the best. You could, f- I could feel the funny in his bones instead right. of the funny in his ideas. Right. So I could feel the funny in his bones, just the way he looked, or yeah. his eye went up. I could see his eyebrow go up, yeah. but I could see the way he paused and the, the look in his eye. You know, you, that's that's to me the the, uh, the the moments in between, like the jazz players talk about. Those were the moments I picked up on in, in the comedy club, and it was thrilling. Oh yeah, no, it's great to see comedy like that, and also I think Carlin was. you know insanely controlled that i i from what i understand everything was written every decision that he made was on the books you know was on his paper Mm -hmm. was in his mind you know the there was like the one thing about hicks and seeing hicks was that whether it was all written out or not there was a menace to it and you you know at any given point in time you didn't know whether he was just gonna like you know you know where it was gonna turn and it was like fuck all of you Right, and and there was an improvisational element just to the sort of like this could go really bad really quickly. Whereas I think Carlin, even even later, was very controlled. I mean, you never got the feeling he was improvising ever. Right? No, I didn't. But uh, the beauty of George Carlin, also for me, one of the things I liked is that he remained an outsider, even though he was a cultural icon. He still, I think, always stood a step or two outside of the culture, which gave him that thing where you know Jerry Seinfeld talked about it on that HBO show where he was given that award. He goes, "I'd rather be standing in the corner making fun of me up here getting this award." And that's kind of where George Carlin stayed, which is what I think helped keep. He was on the cutting edge of comedy till the day he died. Well, that's also because he was only ever a comic that you know whatever that was always his job mm-hmm. and whatever you know tv opportunities which were minimal and they came and went and he was never he was never anything but george carlin right like there are guys there's only a few guys now that really do that that were like because i watched gaffing in the other night and i hadn't seen him in a while and i'm like i gotta go back to like it used to be i'd see hicks i'd be like i gotta rethink everything now yeah. like to see gaffigan's skill set right even though he talks about what he talks about, the flow, the jokes per minute, the sort of comfortability, the sort of groundedness in, in his in his person. He's a guy that does comedy, what, 200 nights a year for large rooms. He's completely clean. He's a family. It's his job. Mm-hmm. Brian Regan's another one. And, you know, someone like Carlin, that's it. That was it. That's all he did. And the same with you. 
Uh, no, no, I, I'm doing lots of other things now. So that's, I was just telling you before we started doing this that I have to get back on stage more often. I've kind of let that, you know, I live out in Pasadena now and I work all day writing for my show. I have another show on the web and, and so I'm always doing something or I'm hosting a show for this, the Young Turks I work for. So I'm busy all the time now. And so when nighttime rolls around, I want to smoke a joint and relax. Yeah. And I can't smoke a joint if I'm going to go do comedy. So right. I got to put that off to now what fucking midnight? <laughs> you know yeah, I, mean? I know, I know that happens, but it's just like it's interesting because I'm just starting to realize this now that the guys that we, you know, even like the bigger comics now, like they are doing a lot of other things. And with Carlin, you know, I really think at some point he settled into being Carlin, and you know, he'd do Vegas sometimes. He do like he was just he was an uh, you know an icon, but he was all only ever a comic. There was, right, you know, there he was did no... have a sitcom for a little while on Fox, right? And he yeah, was, a little bit, and he did some acting. Like cab with... driver or something, it, wasn't he? It, I don't remember. I forget. I didn't watch it, but uh... well, everyone gets their little shot. Even Rickles, but like yeah, Rickles is another guy. He's a comic his whole life. That's it. CPO Sharky was a gem. Are you kidding me? It was what? all right. <laughs> I mean, he did some TV, but you know what I mean. Have you ever just poked around on YouTube and watched those motherfuckers when they were in their prime, and and just like and just watch. Like, uh, I was watching Dangerfield on The Tonight Show just the other night. I somehow was on YouTube, and someone sent me a look at something. So then I watched Dangerfield do a Tonight Show appearance. Mm -hmm. Spectacular. Because, like, it it was, you, like, a lot of times guys like us, you know, uh, either, you know, guys who are overly personal or message guys, political guys, you know, you get into this weird insulated place in your head. And then, you know, you just if you just take a minute and watch one of those old guys just do straight-up fucking pure comedy stand-up, you're like, oh, my God. This is, like, unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Like, I, I went from uh, Dangerfield to a Rickles thing, and I'm like, oh, and I'm laughing out loud. Uh, and, you know, to see Rickles do pan, nobody does that. Nobody does that anymore. He came out when Sinatra was a guest. He came out onto The Tonight Show when Sinatra was sitting there, just as a, a surprise. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was hilarious. He had... You know, it's weird because you, you talk about Hicks, but Rickles had huge balls. Oh, he it's, had to. It's insane because he takes it right to the edge. Yes. You know, and, and you're like, oh, my God. I, yeah, I, I how agree. How can anyone say that to Frank? You know, like... <laughs> Uh, granted, it wasn't he wasn't taking down corporations, but you know he was uh, speaking truth to power when he was uh, saying Frank yes. said like you know Mr. Gambino said that maybe <laughs> no he you know what that was the sense of when late night talk shows you had the sense of anything could happen and what and they're kind of like doing something they're not supposed to do and also but the the entire culture knew who these guys were and the, yes the entire culture knew who they were you know it was like there's a, Don Rickles was on the thing now like you know somebody watches them on television and you're like did you see the thing like I didn't even know that was on yeah is that a new show yeah where do you get that what network I don't know if I get that network can you TiVo it <laughs> so like, just to get to the guy <laughs> You gotta. Do I get that network? Yeah, I, I don't even know if I get that. What yeah, do you that's, a, well, that, that, that's my life. Telling my parents, I got a show on IFC. <laughs> what channel is that? Is that? I don't even know if I get I told that. My, can I tell you? Reserve story. I told. So getting back to my parents and yeah. supporting my comedy career. When my uh, our special on Comedy Central, it got uh, uh, Punchline Magazine. The, named it in five top DVDs of the year. And so I told my dad, I go, Dad, guess what? Punchline Magazine <laughs> named my special top five DVDs of the year. He goes. Punchline Magazine? And he goes, never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was his response. With that tone? Oh, that, my that God. Was a, never heard of it. <laughs> and I was like, here I am, 40 years old, still fucking getting blindsided by my father. When am I going to realize he's exactly the same? No, it's hard. 
You always think, well, they will be oh, this. He'll like this. They won't be. No, it's well. It's always going to trigger that same. Yeah. Feeling. Well, yeah. you know what I'm going through now is I'm realizing. You know, like I, I tell people, people go, "How are you doing?" I go, "Well, my life has exceeded my dreams many times over, mm-hmm. and I still manage to be miserable most of the time." So yeah. I don't know how I'm doing it, but it is. And I realize that we all think the reason why I tried to achieve, try to be a good comedian, do things right, have discipline was because I thought that if I achieved something, it would make me feel the way I thought I wanted to feel, which mm-hmm. was whole and mm-hmm. complete mm-hmm. and like I was worthy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, no matter what I create, no matter no matter what I achieve. like I've, But you get a little self-esteem. I mean, that's the weird thing is that, like when you do achieve something, you at least feel like I know from doing this because I'm the same way mm-hmm. that like it's all right. Well, I'm honoring myself. At least I have that. Like I'm being true to myself. Mm-hmm. And that part is it feels good. There's a wholeness there. But the sort of like the component of happiness or or feeling like, you know, I did it. Yeah. Or, or that like, you know, everything's OK now because I, I know what I'm doing. It's still that's not there. And it comes down to what I think what you're heading at is that, you know, if you can't give the approval you were expecting from your parents to yourself at this age, that hole's always going to be there. Wow. That is, you know what? That is probably right because, you know, you keep thinking, I keep thinking that happiness is on the other side of achievement. Well, if it's always in the future on the other side, when I get there, how will I know? And I'll still be looking towards the next thing, which is how my life has worked out. Yeah. And so I just finally, so now here I am. And not only have I achieved more things that I ever think I could have, but here I am. I have, I'm sub- supposedly have arrived. I don't feel like I have. And in fact, I even feel a little bit fucking cheated mm-hmm. because I've achieved what they told me was supposed to make me feel great. And yet I don't, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just like I still have this empty feeling. So now I'm starting to re- I have to like reevaluate how I relate to work mm-hmm. because I don't have any motivation to work anymore, because if I know my achievement isn't going to make me feel good, what's the point? Yeah. So I have to re. Well, I have that's tricky. Yeah, it's very. I'm going through a thing. <laughs> yeah, I just find that um, like there there's something about being denied something early on, like whether it's love or support uh-huh. or whatever, that there's still some part of you because it comes. It's supposed to be from your parents, where you're like you like still expect it. Like there's some sort of like I'll get it eventually. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. And and and, it, and like the the hard switch to make is sort of like um. That guy's not going to give it to me. (laughs) So like either I got to sort of say like, you did good. I'm proud of you and put your daddy mask on or, or you're just going to kind of keep wandering through life, you know, with that empty feeling. I, I struggle with it all the time. And I also struggle with the idea. It's sort of like, well, I, you know, I'm making a living. I got health insurance. That's all I need. I might not die broke. Now, what do I like to do? I don't fucking know. (laughs) Should I do more of what I like to do? No. I like to do three things. No, what do I like to yeah. do? Yeah. Like, what, what, you know, what are the things that, like, all right, I got a life. I don't got any kids. I don't got, you know, I'm, I don't have any dependents. I don't have a, a woman in the house making me nuts right now. So it's sort of like, why? Well, the, the world's my oyster. I guess I'll sit here and jerk off. <laughs> <laughs> I can do anything I want. I can do anything I, I want. I like that porn clip I had yesterday. <laughs> Turns out this is what I want yeah. to do. Yes. <laughs> Oh boy, this is revealing to myself, right? But for yeah, and so for me, I just feel like um, you know the whole your whole life you're told to prepare for this thing. Hey, you got to get good grades in school because and you got to go to a good high school. When you're in high school, you better get good grades on your SAT so you can go to college. When you're in college, get you got to do good because get you're getting ready. And then you start your job, whatever that is. And they tell you, you got to work. You're at the bottom rung. You're going to get to the top, and then you get to the top of the rung. And it's the same shit. Yeah. 
It's you're still like what? Well, Nothing. Look, but we both know. I mean, you know, we're, we're in a similar like sphere. Is that you know, in our business, you know, there's always going to be the guy that 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 hits the grail. So there's always that issue of like, sort of like, yeah, I'm doing okay, yeah. but like, you know, I, you know, I'm not set. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not set. You, you know what I mean? Yes. It, it's like, you know, in my mind, it's like if I ever got set, I'd do nothing. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Well, that whole thing, if I got set, what would I do? Well, that I'm, I think still, I'm already doing same. it. Still the same. I think I'm already doing it. You right? see these guys that are set. You see Jerry Seinfeld out doing dates again. I'm like, why? Why? Well, in the movie, in his movie Comedian, he actually answers that question. They, people always ask me, why? What, what am I doing this for? And he goes, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's something that I have yet to discover. And that's why I keep doing it. And I love Jerry Seinfeld. I, not my bag. I just love every, it, most things. He, he's so right about comedy and... You know, and it's, it's so funny. We do it's such so different types of comedy, he I, and I. I can't see that we ever would get along at all. Like, I, I like, you know, they see the thing is, is weird. And it's it's something you have too. it's it's interesting because, you know, if you come from a crazy household or you come from, you know, I don't know what he came from, but he like, seems very normal. I, I don't think so. There's no fucking way. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, he's chosen the domain of normalcy to to exhibit his genius. Mm -hmm. But there's something else ticking there. But the one thing I do know, and about Carlin, too, and about why my guys are, you know, that more I more gravitate towards prior, is that, you know, I'm no control freak. You know, like, I, I like to go up there and it's sort of like, I hope something fucked up happens. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I like when control freaks lose their mind. It's one of my great hobbies. Ah. <laughs> so, like, I, I'm a chaos guy. Mm -hmm. And they, and there's definitely chaos guys and there's control guys, you know, and, and Seinfeld's a control guy. It's like he's all about the craft. He's all about the work ethic. He's all about this. And I'm like, well, that's that's why I don't see who the fuck you are. I don't know who you are. If some guy loses his shit, I'm like, I know who that guy is. Oh, OK. Yeah. And that, you, you know, like uh, it's just it, it's a different thing with me because I think the risk of comedy is not. Wondering if this bit that you've labored over for months works. And I've gotten more like this. I've had to force myself to do this where it's sort of like, I'm going to work on a bit for four months. I'm going to, I got a 10 minute chunk here that I want to, you know, stay a story and I'm going to put my craft to work and I'm really going to work this thing. And then I find, and then you do it on TV and it's right. All right. It's garbage now. No, like I'm not, you know, I'm done with it, but uh, it's rewarding, but there's nothing more rewarding to me than like something that I can't recapture. Wow. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm one of the control, I'm on the control end. Right. You know, uh, not not having my stuff, not knowing exactly what I'm going to do makes me nervous. It gives me comfort to have my jokes in my pocket. I think I think that's a, that's you know a professional I mean? and a personal choice that makes sense. And, yeah. And then what but when I do that show set list, like that's why I do that, because it scares the shit out of me every time I do it. Yet it always goes well. Yeah. And well, so you're a professional. You forget that sometimes. I, I guess so I've been doing this half my life. <laughs> you know, what's, what's going to happen up there? <laughs> okay, the worst if I start crying that'll be new <laughs> ah yeah I've never cried on stage I came close I have but not at a, a stand-up show per se but I've gotten emotional really I I um you know whenever I got up you know I would notice that my anger on stage would be that um I didn't feel like my comedy was gonna go over like there why are you ha hampering me well one time I walked a room in uh Detroit and it was the only time I ever did anything and like, they've been through some things and they've you been through <laughs> What yeah. Did, what did you do? It's a long, long story. Well, I got time. <laughs> so, no, just a table of women who didn't have, want anything to do with the show. It was the second show, and they wouldn't shut up. And I stopped to did ask. You say, did you say cunts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Until they left. 
Over and over again, yeah. he said cunts. over and over. And, but, and then, but in a funny way, like lyrical, I would sing it sometimes. And, did, and I would just keep saying it. But everyone left eventually? Uh, they yeah. sided with them. Yeah, the waitresses started yelling at me. <laughs> Not a full house to begin with. No, it was pretty full. Oh, boy. <laughs> when you, lo- when yeah. you lose the weights, then. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and they just want to go home early, so it served them either way. But, it, you know, but that's one of those things I had to go through. You know, I think I had to I had to do that. I had to Well, I mean, we do that. I mean, I do that thing where you, you know, you look at a crowd or you get to the club and you you make these weird assumptions. Like you you're mm-hmm. already at odds. Before yeah. you even get out there, you're like, yeah. I'm, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. There's no and and when you do politics, it that's it exacerbates it. That like, you know, I knew when I did politics and I would go do gigs, not only did I guess let less people to the gig being billed as a political comic, but there's already people coming in going like, all right, let's see what team this guy's on. Yeah, yeah. And if they already decided you're not on their team, they're not going to go to the club. So you already have, you know, cut off yourself from a good deal. That's why I've been fighting against that moniker of, uh, you know, I, I like to think of myself more. I tried it. I tried to be more of a George Carlin-esque, you know, and less of a, um, I don't know, a, 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 a someone only a else. couple of them. Yeah, you know, a Bill Maher, but even he's pretty good. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, yeah, I it's I, just I, weird. There's I like to there. when I, you know, it's like, but people come. I don't, I'm not telling. I'm not telling jokes about the Taft Hartley Act. I'm telling jokes about health care. Can you explain that to me? Or then? no. Okay. And I, you know, I tell, well, I tell you, even talk about it in the book, you know, like I talk about gay marriage and, uh, and pot smoking and I talk about sex and marriage and all that stuff. I talk about all the things it's, it's, but it, it's a thing. People think that politics is a game they can play sometime. And a perfect example is this guy, Andy Cohen, who hosts that show on Bravo, right? So about a year or two ago, he was making the rounds on all the talk shows and he wanted to, uh, talk about gay marriage. And he would come on every news talk show because I watch him also. I would see him over and over say the same thing, which was, you know, on my show, I'm not political at all. And I was like, really? You're not political at all on your show? You're a gay guy hosting a national television show. That's fucking political right there. That's like a Jew hosting a television show in Germany in 1930. You're already political. So you can't pretend. He's like, ah, I'm not political. Oh, except when you stop to talk about the most incendiary political issue of our day, then you're political. Yeah, but but, but also, though, he has a, a right to it because it affects him like uh, extremely personally. See, that's what I found about politics is that the thing is, if you talk about it in a general way, first of all, it's very hard not to be hackneyed. Very hard. Yes. It's very hard to actually have your own point of view on talking points from either side. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the issues I had with doing political talk is that like one day you wake up and you're like, none of these are my ideas. Right. And uh, and, I'm not saying they're not important ideas, but, you know, who am I carrying water for? But also, like, you know, if you can't speak sometimes from a, a personal place, like, how does this affect me? That really became sort of the deciding factor for me. Right. Like, am I if I sit here. And I really engage, and I'm incredibly disengaged. That's also your choice as an American and as a person. It's sort of like, I'm not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Well, why not? I'm like, because I, I, so I can. I don't have to pay attention. You know, I'm all right. You know, I pay my taxes. What do I have to fucking pay attention for? And But I feel guilty about that. But like, if I was to really sit down and, you know, think about the Palestinians or think about, uh, uh, you know, uh, racism in this country, which I do occasionally, but, you know, more so than not, I end up thinking about myself. And is there a crime to that? No. But is that where I'm, I'm doing my comedy from? Yeah. Does politics sometimes get involved? Not as much as it should, but it does occasionally. But I have to come from that place or else I don't feel like I feel like I'm doing myself a disservice. I feel like I'm being disingenuous. Yeah. Well, you have to speak for wh- wherever you are emotionally. That's where you have to s- speak from, you know. But uh, the, the problem I have with a guy like Andy Cohen saying that because it, it makes it sound like 
politics is a game you can play sometimes that nice people don't ever really bring up. It's rude almost to talk about it. He's he's just talking about this one little thing that happens to be inextricably tied to every other fucking thing. But he's just talking about he's he's letting you know he's not like one of those strident political types who's going to say anything that makes you uncomfortable. He's a good guy. As if it's, it gives you a false sense that co- politics is a game you can play sometimes. What I try to tell people is that, you know, everything is politics. You want to smoke pot without going to jail? That's politics. You want to be able to marry somebody of the same gender? That's politics. You want to be able to get the pothole fixed in front of your house? That's actually politics. So everything is politics, and we do. And if you think it's not, you're just letting other people, rich people, decide what your community should look like. Okay. But I understand being disengaged is di- on purpose like you are. You were super engaged, and then for whatever reason, emotionally or artistically, you de-engaged. That's different. You're not pretending that politics is a game you can play. Well, it's also, but the choice is, it's a weird thing with politics. Sometimes people like to keep it private. Sometimes, like when you just say that's politics, it's not essentially politics until you need to sort of figure out well, why isn't this happening? Like, how is it How yeah. is it unfair? Like, if I want to go to a doctor and not go bankrupt. Like, oh, right. is that like, politics? Right. Turns out. Right, yeah, but a lot of people, like, you know, I don't even know how my insurance works. But you had health issues. Yeah. So it became a, a fairly, you Big know, deal for me. What, what, what was the story of that? What happened to you? So, no, I had, uh, they couldn't diagnose it for a while, uh, and I just kept kind of, my, my condition deteriorated. And uh, what was it? Turns out it was a bone pro. had a tumor, very rare disease, like maybe two people a year get it. How long ago did it first start happening? So it started happening around 2004, mm-hmm. and then it just kept going. And I was what lim- was the symptom? Uh, pain in everywhere. And uh, then I had uh, dead bone in uh, parts of my body, my hip. And then I had a couple of vertebra uh, cr- uh, break. I broke my back three times. And, what? Uh, because of this condition? Yeah. What's it called? It was called osteomalacia, hypophosphatemic But they couldn't figure out what it was. No. Well, here's kind of tell you a funny story. Is, uh, is they would, uh, I, I would go to these doctors and they would go, oh, we think you have this. And then I'd turn six months later, I'd get worse. they go, oh, you have something else. They don't know. And I go, who, who, should I, who should I go with? They go, you should go to this guy, Dr. Sharp. He's the best guy. Yeah. So I call him up and he didn't take insurance. I was like, well, I can't. It's going to cost me $1,000 just to walk in the door. I can't. Buy. What an idiot. Right? So finally, I'm just about dead. I go, hey, let's go see that Dr. Sharp. And he figured it out like that mm-hmm. and he goes oh you have this thing nobody's ever going to know what this is I saw this once before in 1968 blah 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 so then he got me on the right treatment and I feel good but what was the struggle with insurance I mean were you paying out of pocket Did yeah I was paying oh left and right yeah it cost a lot of money I had a couple of spine surgeries and so yeah everything costs a lot of money yeah yep, cost, and I didn't have a benefit I didn't do that because I was dumb I was in, I was also it also caused a depression mentally in me depression so I didn't want to do anything I didn't want to do that I didn't want to look weak like I, I can't pay my own bills so yeah. I didn't have one of those things so I just paid for it anyway but uh, so yeah so that made me political mm-hmm. and that made me uh, changed a lot of things in my life made me look at things a lot differently uh, it was one of the yeah it was what okay. I was definitely like when Robin Robin Williams or you know I was like I I know exactly what that's like I yeah. know exactly you want to be right you're like oh like there's a real fine line yeah between crossing that line and not crossing that line could be just a bad morning yeah, yeah you know and I think you know as an artistic type you know I got to remind myself every morning this is going away yeah <laughs> this right. is going no, yeah, away I do that too like I was fairly despondent and I felt a weird kind of uh, heavy heartedness. The last couple of days and because like i'm a sober guy and like you know i've been through it before i had to say like oh, there's a good chance this might go away yeah 
You know, this ain't every day. This ain't going to be the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And it does. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. unless you hold on to it. Yeah. You know, right. No, it's not going away. We just talked about it for an hour. I know, but it didn't help. <laughs> you know, maybe you're committed to it. No, fuck you. See, now you're part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm. it's great. You know, uh, I feel much. I've, you know, I couldn't be happier now. I mean, you I could be a little. Like the last time I, I mean, we had, like, I always felt it. Like, the weird thing with you in, in, in terms of me is that, you, you know, I knew that, you know, when I did your show with your wife, we had a nice time. But I've seen you a few times. And I, like, if you're an angry guy, it's almost like being a Jew. Like, you one know, time, another angry Can I guy. tell you one time you were at the improv and you were on stage and you were doing the joke about Santa Claus? And what was that? It's a long time ago. What? I don't even remember having a joke about Santa Claus. Somebody, Jesus, Santa Claus is something. You have a you had a joke, and it was funny. And yeah. I la- and it was like a small crowd at the yeah, improv, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I laughed. You know, and, and you know, I have a loud laugh. I let it go. I don't yeah. hold that in. Yeah. And uh, you thought I was mocking you, <laughs> and you go, "Oh, like, fuck you, Jimmy! You're fucking mocking me!" And I I didn't want to yell out, "Hey, no, I'm enjoying this," because I didn't want to get any more into right, your right, set. Right. So I just shut up about it, and then I don't, I didn't tell you afterwards. I think I did go up to you and say, "You know, I was really just laughing. Yeah. I enjoy your yeah. comedy." Yeah. And then you and we were like, "Yeah, you fucking Jimmy, you're sitting there mocking me." I'm like, "I wasn't mocking you. I was just enjoying you." I'm so insecure. I remember one time I was on the road, and because I had never, you know, you're a New York guy, so I hadn't really seen you yeah. that much, and there was a middle. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's a Mark Maron joke. So I went online to look for your stuff, and I hadn't seen your Letterman sets. And I was like, well, those are really, those are really good. Yeah. And I emailed you. I was like, those are fantastic. Well, here's the weird thing about angry people and about like what I maybe have d- have done with you in the past. Because I, I thought we had a problem around, you know, Todd coming out. No, you and I did not have a problem. No, I know that. Yeah. And, but, yeah, but see, the thing about, about anger, about the other thing, about the laughter thing, is that, you know, I'm going up there with this stuff, and you make this assumption in your head that, like, you know, people aren't going to like it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, this is not going to be for everybody. So then what you end up doing is literally projecting the voice inside of you, which is like this, you know, they don't like you or this is going to suck or whatever. And you put it on other people. It's a load off. So like, you know, some, you know, a guy like you, I don't know that well. I'm like, well, you just did what I assumed everyone would do. Right. And, and, you know, and I know you did that. Yeah. You know, I've been having a real issue with this shit. Uh, perception. Yeah. Like, you, you know, what, what am I making up and what is real? Especially when it comes to other people, most of the time you're making it up. Yeah, a lot of time it's projection. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, a lot of time it's projection. It's crazy, and it, like you know, if you keep pushing the projection enough, eventually they'll be like, "Yeah, I don't like you." <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. Now I don't like you. <laughs> but I, and then I, and then when I was you know when I was coming back in when I was getting better and healthier, I went through a thing where I was I got nervous to be on stage. Yeah. Ugh. Oh god, I was the like, worst. "Are you fucking?" I was like, that made me angry. Like it made me angry. Like I was angry at this emotion inside of myself. Crazy, and, but but that helped me. You know, like it helped me get on stage, like because it kind of reawakened an anger or something. And so my anger was stronger than my fear. I haven't and, had that in a while. Like Richard Pryor said, the only enemy of creativity is fear, because you don't know uh, when that's going to come. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that feeling of like you know, especially after you spend twenty years of your life up there, and all of a sudden you hit with this like ugh, the vulnerability. Yeah, vulnerability. Like, that's it. Yeah. Oh, for the, I remember I was on stage at the Laugh Factory in Long Beach, and I remember it went through my head. What if they don't laugh? Yeah. I had never really thought that before. Really? I, I, I don't, I know. I, what if they don't like, what if they don't like, I always knew they were going to laugh. I'm going to do, get in, like, what if it's quiet, silence? Yeah. There's nothing, boo me, do something. Yeah, yeah. And I had that fear, and they, of course, they laughed and everything, but I got, I sh- was shitting my pants for some reason. I couldn't wait to get off stage, which I don't like that. I never had that feeling before. I wait, can't wait to get off stage. What the weird thing is, is like, you know, like, if that vulnerability is up right up next to you, 
you know, and I, I, I tend to, you know, sort of like try to live in it a little on stage, but if it's right there and it's not quite in line, like mm-hmm. if it's like a fear thing or a sad thing, mm-hmm. like that, you know, when you're up there, it's like, if, if, if that gets out, you know, all bets are off. Like there's a, there's a moment there where you like it. Cause I was doing these huge shows and I'm like, if I really like let myself be like the, the sort of frightened, vulnerable person that I am right now, they're not going to laugh. I'm going to have a thousand people going like what's happening mm-hmm. with a weird silence like uh-oh i know that's right there and and it, that that moment where you, you you're in that battle like that can't win like i can't <laughs> well i think you know you being vulnerable on stage it has to be a very controlled vulnerability because it's you know the old analogy people used to make about the comedians like a lot like a pilot on a plane you don't want your pilot to be nervous. Hey, it's a, I don't know. I don't that's know. right. That's I, true. That's true. You can't expect the audience to to sort of parent you, right? In a way, yes. you can't go up there like I'm lost. Do yeah. you know where my mommy is? Yeah. You know, you you have to have that they're under like, control. They're like, okay, if you know how this is going to work out, I'll let you be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We trust. <laughs> if you. I have a feeling yeah, yeah, that yeah. you know where this is going, you got a handle on it. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. That's so. The, it's, so that's the you that's know, the trick. That yeah. That's the the catch twenty two. So what? So tell me all the things you got going on right now. So I got this book, which is uh, your country is just not that into you, which I'm real uh, proud of. How's it doing? Happy out there? about it. Doing great. Good. It's doing really good. Uh, uh, then I have a web series with the Young Turks. The Jimmy Dore Show is over there, and I have the Jimmy Dore Show podcast and radio show. No and more uh, comedy and everything else. We ha- it's a hiatus. Like it's still up. People still download. We still get about seventeen thousand downloads a week on uh-huh. that thing. People like listening to those shows. Yeah. And, uh, but no, we haven't done any more. We haven't done it. I just been too busy doing uh, other projects. You know, yeah, we were, yeah, I was doing a tour with the Young Turks. We're doing live theaters and stuff. Oh, so now Ben Mankiewicz and I and Jank yeah, uh, Uger. They're good guys. Yeah. So and they got a big operation over there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. And uh, you're making a living. And I can do it. Yeah. I can do and say whatever I want, which is the greatest thing. Well, you seem great and I'm happy that you're happy. Well, thank for you. For the most part. Yeah, I'm, 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 for the most part, I'm happy. All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me, Mark. That's it. That is my show. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get the app. Get some just coffee.coop. Get the uh, get some knowledge on who's been on the show and who hasn't been on the show.